Good morning and welcome to Centennial Church. My name is Ross and uh, we are just so glad that you're here. It is a special morning for us. We're going to celebrate some baptisms directly after uh, this service. So uh, when I dismiss us here at about 1145, it's not actually a dismissal, okay? It's actually a let's transition this party uh, down here on the grass by the volleyball court. And we would love for as many of you as possible to stay and celebrate uh, about 11 baptisms, 11 people getting baptized this morning. Isn't that great? It is an awesome thing. Uh, If you were here last week for our Easter service, what an awesome time we had last week celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. And it's only appropriate uh, that a week after Easter, we would celebrate baptism because baptism actually, as we believe it here at Centennial Church, is a picture of the resurrection. It's a picture of lives made new because of the gospel. Last week, uh, many of our friends and neighbors and family members were here and we told the, the good news, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection for, for us. And I offered an invitation to any who had not yet placed their faith in Christ to, to accept Christ uh, last week. And, and probably about a dozen hands went up and I were able to speak to some about that decision to follow Christ. And if, if you were in that category, if you trusted Christ last week, perhaps for the first time, or you just have kind of been a Christian, but haven't really taken many steps, I want to offer again for you to talk to me or Pastor Brent or one of our elders uh, after church this morning. We, had, we also gave out a resource last week to those that had trusted Christ, and I would love to make that available to anyone this morning uh, that needs some just practical tools so that we can encourage you uh, in your faith. So this morning after our service, we are going to go down there, we'll bab- baptize 11 folks, and Baptism, as I said, is a picture of the gospel as the reason we practice dunking around here, which uh, is technically called immersion, baptism by immersion. The reason we do that in uh, contrast to perhaps sprinkling uh, infants or things like that is we believe it is the most accurate picture of the gospel. So as we lower these uh, children and as we lower these adults down into the water, yes, of a horse trough, okay, uh, As we lower them down into the water, it pictures their being united with Christ. They go into the water dead in sin. And the water, of course, symbolizes the washing of their hearts that happened through the spilled blood of Jesus. But as as they have identified through faith in Christ, baptism pictures that their old life, they have died. They are going down as if you will, into the tomb. And as we bring them up out of the water, the water symbolizing washing, as we bring them up out of the water, that coming up out of the water symbolizing resurrection, symbolizing the fact that they have died with Christ and they have been raised to new life through faith in Christ. That's what baptism pictures by immersion this morning. So we'll celebrate that. And for many today, their baptism will be a highlight of their spiritual life. It will be an anchor of their spiritual walk, something that they will look at the pictures, they will post on their Facebook page or tweet or whatever, and they will be able to look back at that picture, as, uh, at that baptism as an anchor in their spiritual life. When they doubt, when they go through temptation, when they struggle, when they question, that baptism will be a reminder of, no, I have stood up, I have gone forth and professed my faith in Christ as my Savior. He has me, and I have him. 
if you've followed Christ for any length of time, you know that there are these seasons, there are these times that are kind of emotional highs in the spiritual life. It might have been when you first trusted Christ, when you heard the gospel. It might have been your baptism. It might have been that camp experience that probably many of our kids will have this summer as we support them going to camp. That, that camp high, that energy, that excitement. Uh, we love those experiences. We are experiential people. But if you follow Jesus long, you, you know, as I do, that not every stage, not every season is a mountaintop experience, right? There are times of difficulty. There are valleys. And there are times when we are deeply disappointed in ourselves, deeply disappointed questioning of God, and you need to know that if you're one getting baptized today, this is a joyous time, but there will be seasons in your life where you wonder, God, are you still at work in my heart? Is this really real? Have I really been saved? Am I really your child? Because it doesn't feel like it. And all of us will go through these phases of doubt and disappointment. This morning, I want to read you the words of one author, a pastor by the name of John Ortberg who describes better than I could describe this sense of disappointment that I think most of us, if not all of us, feel at some point in our spiritual life. So these are the words of John Ordberg. It's a bit uh, lengthy, but hang in here with me because I think he expresses what you and I sometimes feel. He writes this. He begins this, this whole book with these words. I'm disappointed with myself. I'm disappointed not so much with particular things I've done as with aspects of who I have become. I have a nagging sense that all is not as it should be. Some of this disappointment is trivial. I wouldn't have minded getting a more muscular physique. I can't do basic home repairs. So far, I haven't shown, any, shown much financial wizardry, wizardry. Some of this disappointment is neurotic, Sometimes I'm too concerned about what others think of me, even people I don't know. Some of this disappointment I know is worse than trivial. It is simply the sour fruit of self-absorption. I attend a high school reunion and can't choke back the desire to stand out by looking more attractive or having achieved more impressive accomplishments than my classmates. I speak to someone with whom I want to be charming and my words come out awkward and pedestrian. I'm disappointed in my ordinariness. But some of this disappointment in myself runs deeper. When I look into my children as they sleep at night, I think of the kind of father I want to be. I want to create moments of magic. I want them to remember laughing until the tears flow. I want to read to them and make the books come alive so they love to read. I want to have slow, sweet talks with them as they're getting ready to close their eyes. I want to sing them awake in the morning. I want to chase fireflies with them, teach them to play tennis, have food fights and hold them and pray for them in a way that makes them feel cherished. I look in, and on, I look in on them as they sleep at night and I remember how the day really went. I remember how they were trapped in a fight over checkers and I walked out of the room because I didn't want to spend the energy needed to teach them how to resolve conflict. I remember how my daughter spilled cherry punch at dinner and I yelled at her about being careful as if she'd revealed some deep character flaw. I yelled at her. I yelled at her even though I spill things all the time and no one yells at me. 
I yelled at her to tell the truth simply because I'm big and she's little and I can get away with it. And then I saw that look of hurt and confusion in her eyes and I knew there was a tiny wound on her heart that I had put there and I wished I could have those 60 seconds back. I remember how at night I didn't have slow, sweet talks but merely rushed the children to bed so I could have more time to myself. I'm disappointed. And it's not just my life as a father, I'm disappointed also for my life as a husband, friend, neighbor, and human being in general. I'm disappointed that I still love God so little and sin so much. I always had the idea as a child that adults were pretty much the people they wanted to be, yet the truth is, I'm embarrassingly sinful. I'm capable of dismaying amounts of jealousy. I'm disappointed at my capacity to be small and petty. I cannot pray for very long without my mind drifting into fantasy. I can convince people that I'm busy and productive and yet waste large amounts of time watching television. These are just some of my disappointments. I have other ones, darker ones that I'm not ready to commit to paper. The truth is, even to write these words is a little misleading because it makes me sound more sensitive to my fallenness than I really am. Sometimes, although I'm aware of how far I fall short, it doesn't even bother me very much. And I'm disappointed at my lack of disappointment. I don't know how much you can identify with John Orberg's words there, but I can. Because life is not always a spiritual high. And there are deep times of trials and there are deep disappointments with ourselves. I've been trying to follow Jesus for 30 years now. I've been serving Jesus in full-time ministry for over 20 years now. And there are still moments, there are still seasons of disappointment with where I am with Christ, how, how little I love God, how quickly I snap at my children, how harsh I can be with my wife how I can botch a difficult conversation and what were you thinking? Why did you do that? We uh, can beat ourselves up. We can be uh, highly disappointed. In fact, I would say that many Christians live with kind of a low-level guilt of their walk with God. And I want to suggest to you this morning that that is uh, not the way that God wants us to live. Amen. We can be disappointed at our sin and we should be disappointed uh, at times. We should examine how we are living and examine the sin in our lives and, and see where we need to repent and confess. But God has not called us, his children, to live in some low-level guilt or in disappointment all the time. And there's hope in the gospel. In fact, there's hope in the verse, in the passage that we're gonna look at this morning that says that the God who loves us, created us, and has saved us is still working in us despite the deep disappointment we often feel. And that we don't have to live in deep disappointment, but because of the gospel, we can live in reality, but also live in deep hope that God is not yet done with us. Though I may fail, he is faithful. 
And in fact, my eyes, my focus is not supposed to be upon myself and my lack of faith or my faithlessness or my fickle faith or whatever, but my eyes are supposed to be fixed on Jesus. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 2, it says, fix your eyes on Jesus. And so we need to examine ourselves. We need to confess our sins, but we also need to quickly look back at the person of Jesus to his grace and his acceptance of us in Jesus. So this morning, I hope that this verse that we're going to look at will be encouraging to those being baptized, and I hope that it will be encouraging to all of us as you listen in uh, to this message of hope for God's faithfulness to us. So this verse, Philippians 1.6, go ahead and open your Bibles. This verse, I hope, will help you uh, when you sin. This verse will be helpful to you when you find yourself spiritually dry, when God seems distant to you, when you have a low level of joy, and even when you are proud. Philippians 1, 6, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, I hope you will find as a comfort uh, for you this morning and in times to come. So the title of our sermon this morning is Doubt and Confidence. Doubt and confidence. I'm going to read for you this morning the first seven verses of Philippians. We've been in a study of Philippians for about four weeks here before Easter, and we continue on this morning. I'm going to read the first seven verses, and then we will just focus our time this morning primarily on verse six alone. Okay, so join me in uh, Philippians 1, and I will read it for us, and then we will pray for our time, okay? Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you, about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Will you pray with me? Father God, we pray that the words of your scripture will encourage us this morning that they would give us hope in the midst of disappointment and trial and, and uh, difficulty. Holy Spirit, would you work through these words? Would you work through me, this unworthy vessel? Would you help us to find truth in your word? That's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So we're going to see in this verse, again, verse 6, we're going to see three things this morning, and that is the source of the good work, the substance of the good work God does with us, and then thirdly, the speed of the good work that God does in, it, in us, okay? So source, substance, and speed. First of all, the source of the good work, okay? The source of the good work. Look at verse 6 with me again. Verse 6 says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Who is doing the work? He. And who is he? He is God. The hope of this scripture is that he, God, has begun the good work in us. It's not, salvation is not something that we've just discovered on our own or we worked for. 
the work of God in our life is, first of all, begins with God. He begins the good work in us. It's he who began the good work, and it's he who will bring it to completion. Ultimately, do we have a part in it? Yes. Do we follow him? Yes. But ultimately, what God has done, what God has started in your life, and what God will complete in your life is his good work. And for the Philippians, this was very clear. If you were with us a few weeks ago, we talked about how the church at Philippi was formed. And we find that story in Acts chapter 16. If you want to flip to that later and read it, that's fine. But just briefly here this morning, Acts chapter 16, Paul uh, forms this church in Philippi. And it's, it's one of the churches that's formed that we have the most data about how it was formed. There's, there's quite a bit of, of story there. And the story goes like this. In Acts chapter 16, Paul, who's this missionary uh, for Jesus is traveling about the Mediterranean world. And it says at the beginning of chapter 16 that Paul hadn't even intended to go to Philippi. He wanted to go north to a different region. It says in verse 5 or 6 around Acts chapter 16, it says that the Spirit of God would not let him go. The Spirit, that's all it says. It doesn't ha- say how the Spirit of God did that, but it said the Spirit of God would not let him go to where he wanted to go. He was, his tour, if you will, was being redirected change of plans. And in fact, it says also in chapter 16 that he has this vision. After he's brought off detour, he has this vision of a man in Macedonia, where Philippi was, a man in Macedonia calling out to him saying, send us help. So he's redirected in his tour. He has this vision of a guy saying, come help us. And so he says, well, the Lord is obviously leading me somewhere else and I'm supposed to go to Macedonia. He sails to Macedonia and the first place he reaches is Philippi where there are some people, women, along the riverbank worshiping a God they don't quite know yet. One of those is a person named Lydia. And so he finds these worshipers, these people seeking God. He's like, this must be why God has brought me here. And he preaches the gospel. He tells them about Jesus. They had not yet heard of Jesus. And it says also in Acts chapter 16 that as he spoke, the Lord opened up the heart of Lydia so that she could understand so that she believed. And if that's not enough of the sovereignty of God in him rerouting Paul's trip and then clearly opening up the heart of a woman to understand so she would no longer be spiritually blind, the story continues because Paul finds himself in jail in Philippi. You may be familiar with this story. But he finds himself in jail uh, with some of his buddies because he's been preaching in Philippi. And what happens in the middle of the night? An earthquake comes. An earthquake happens, and their chains fall off, and they're freed from jail. The jailer ends up hearing the gospel, becoming a believer, and being baptized right then. Is there any doubt for Paul? Is there any doubt for these Philippian believers, this church, that, hey, God has has reached out to us? This is God's work that he started. He redirected Paul's journey. He supernaturally opened up the hearts of those who believe And now he's caused a natural disaster to get him out of jail so that other people can believe. He started the work. And that's why Paul writes to them and says, don't forget how this happened. God started the work and God will be faithful to complete it. What you and I need to know is that while you may have been searching for God, ultimately God was searching for you. And he found you. 
It's common to say after you come to faith, and you may even hear this at baptisms, I found God, I accepted God. You did, that's a true statement. But what's also true, and I think it's probably even becomes more true, more resonates more uh, the more you the longer you walk with Christ, is that, you know what? I found God, but he found me. He came after me. He supernaturally placed me at this time in this place next to this person. He brought me into this family. He brought me next to this coworker who told me about the gospel. I think the more you think about it, the more you dwell on it, you'll understand that, yes, you chose God, but God also works supernaturally to bring you to himself. It's he that began the good work. To say it another way, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, says it like this. This is a popular verse. One version says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. The ESV says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and was seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Fix your eyes. Look to Jesus. That's the imperative. And how is Jesus described after that command? He's described as the founder and perfecter of our faith. Another translation says the author and finisher of our faith. What does that mean? That that means that Jesus authored our faith. He began your faith and he will finish it. He is the author and finisher, the author and perfecter of our faith. He writes the script and he finishes the script. It begins and ends because of God and his grace. Even the psalmist, Psalm 138, verse 8, says this, The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for you. Also, John 10, chapter 27 through 30, Jesus' own own words says this, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. You are in the father's hand and no one is able to snatch you. You can't jump out. He has you. He will protect you. He will save you to the end. Our confidence in our salvation, our assurance, our confidence in salvation is grounded not on our works, but his work. Not on our faithfulness, but his faithfulness. Not on our grip on him, but his grip on us. He who began the work will be faithful to complete it. He's the source of the good work. Secondly, the substance of the good work. The substance of the good work. Verse 6, again, says, He who began the good work will be faithful to complete it. But what is the good work? What is the good work that he's talking about here? Well, I want to to lay out before you this morning kind of three aspects of that good work. The first thing that may pop in your head is, well, the good work is that he's, he's saving me. And that's true. Part of his good work is that he saves us, but there's really three basic aspects of God's good work in us. The first one is the work that God does for us. That's salvation, okay? We're gonna look at some of these verses in a second. Uh, The second aspect of his work in us is the work that he does in us. That's sanctification. 
He saves us, but he also sanctifies us. That's a church word. What does the word sanctify mean? Sanctify means to be holy, to be set apart, to be growing in Christ-likeness, to be growing in purity, to be growing in our walk with Jesus. That's what we call sanctification. So his work in us is salvation, saving us from our sins. His work in us is sanctification. And finally, uh, see there, the work God does through us is our service. He's doing a good work in us to save us, to sanctify us, and to serve us. Let's look briefly at a couple uh, references on this. The work God does for us. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Many of you may know this verse, but it's a wonderful verse about God's grace to save us. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. Why are we saved? Not by our works not by our merit, not by our worthiness, but by the grace of God, the unmerited favor of God. It is a gift. Now, do you do anything to earn a gift? No. You receive a gift. It's because of someone else's good graces they give you a gift. You don't pay for a gift. You don't earn a gift or it's not a gift. Salvation is the gift of God by grace. The work God does in us, sanctification, a good place to go on this one is Titus 2, 11 through 14. And Titus 2, 11 through 14 actually shows us all three of these aspects of salvation, the salvation, the sanctification, as well as the service. So read along uh, here, Titus chapter 2 says this, Titus 2, 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. There's the grace of God bringing salvation. Verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That's the emphasis on growing in sanctification. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The, The Apostle Paul here is saying that grace saves us, but grace is also sanctifying us. It's helping us to say no to ungodliness. And sin, verse 13, while we wait, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us, that's salvation again, from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, to purify for himself. He's saving us, but he's also purifying us. He is making us more like Jesus. Salvation, sanctification, and finally, service. The work God does through us is service. And this, we go back to Ephesians chapter two. Ephesians two, eight and nine talks about the grace that saves us. There it is again. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. Hey, we're saved just by faith, right? Not by our works. So does that mean I can just go out and live and like I want to? Just get my fire insurance, so to speak, get saved and then just go on about my life? That's not true grace because verse 10 of Ephesians chapter two fills it out with these words. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand beforehand, that we should walk in them. So follow me here. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. You are not saved by works. But verse 10, you are saved for good works. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. And the verse, 
Verse 10 says, there's good works. We've been saved for good works and they're good works that God has prepared for us beforehand. It's like before the foundation of the world, before God created, before you, he even brought you into this world, he has a good work for you to do. Do you know that? Have you realized that at at this specific place, at this specific time, God has predestined, he has pre-planned a good work or good works for you to be about. Through your personality, through your gifting, through your natural network of relationships in your neighborhood, at your workplace, he he has put you there strategically at this time and this place for you to do your good work. You're not here by accident. You're not there by accident. You you don't have those gifts by accident. But because God wants to use you to do good works, to be his hands and feet in this world, to be his minister, to be his missionary, he's got a good work for you to do. Do you know what it is? Well, maybe maybe you don't. One one way to, to find that out is just simply by to explore experimenting different ways of service. Maybe you find out you have the gift of hospitality. Maybe you find out you you really love, you're a merciful person and and you want to help those that are sick. You want to reach out to these families that are in hurting. Maybe you have the gift of teaching, but you've, you've never given it a shot. But God has saved you, not just to immediately take you to heaven save you, take you up into the clouds and, and, and do away with you on earth, but he has saved you and left you here to do something, to contribute to the kingdom here, to do a good work here, to be a minister and missionary right here. The good work that he does in us, salvation, sanctification, and service. That's the substance of his good work. And finally, point number three, the speed of the good work. The speed of the good work. Well, there is a sense, okay, where God does a good work in us as salvation that in, in an instant, the moment we trust in Jesus, the moment we say, Jesus, I believe that you're not just a good teacher, but that you are the Savior. You came to this earth, lived a perfect life, died the death on the cross for me, and, and was resurrected three days later. The moment you put your faith in Jesus, you're saved. The speed of salvation is fast. But you know what's Slower. The speed of sanctification, much slower, much longer than many of us would hope for, and thus the disappointment, right? And man, I remember clearly the the moment that God really brought this home to me. I can remember it clearly like it was last week, but I remember a season in my life when I was deeply disappointed, deeply disappointed in my ministry, deeply just disappointed in myself, wanted God Uh, do you really want to use me? Have you done a good work in me? What is it that you want me to do with the rest of my life? I was in a a season of disappointment. And I remember very clearly where I was driving. I was in my car and this Philippians 1.6 has always been a favorite verse of mine uh, from the time I was a young man, but I've always loved this verse. And as I was in this uh, bit of kind of navel gazing and disappointment with myself and beating myself up a little bit. I I remembered as I was driving the car, Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. That's encouraging, isn't it? But what I realized as I was driving in my car down I-35, what I realized is that I don't quote the last part of that verse very often. There's more to the verse. It says that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it when? At the day of Christ Jesus, or some translations say, until 
the day of Christ Jesus. What's that mean? That means that I'm not done yet. That means that I've got a ways to go. That means that God's going to be faithful to complete a work in me, but guess when it's going to be done? Not when I'm 40, not when I'm 60, not after I've gone to seminary, not when I've read all the Bible finally, not when I've read a bunch of Christian books or theology or been in church for 20 years. God's going to complete that work in me. He promises me that. But here's the realism. It ain't done until the day he comes back. So quit beating yourself up. Quit being disappointed with yourself because God will finish the work, but he will not finish it until Jesus comes back or you are six feet under. And then you'll be done. Then you can cease striving. You can, you can cease with the anguish. You can cease with the disappointment in the sickness, the illness, the death, the temptation that you face every day. Because again, let me go back and end with Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. As the NIV says it, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Fix our eyes on Jesus. How did you get saved? If you're saved this morning, how did you get saved? By fixing your eyes on Jesus. The way anyone comes to faith is by saying, Jesus, I'm a sinner and I'm looking to you to save me. Saved. Instantaneously. You know how you grow as a follower of Jesus? Every day, you say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, and I need you. You're giving yourself the gospel day after day, that I'm accepted not by my works, Jesus, but by your grace. I need you, Jesus, today. That doesn't mean you get resaved every day, Okay, but it means that the Christian life is not about, get this, fixating on ourselves, navel gazing, beating ourselves up about our fickle faith or our failures. Folks, we do need to self-examine ourselves. We do need to take account of our sin and our struggle and bring people along to help us. The Bible talks about fighting sin, but we don't fix our eyes on ourselves. That's bad news. The good news is fix your eyes on Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, of our faith. We don't navel gaze, we gospel gaze. One famous preacher of an age ago named Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. What does that mean? That means, man, God, I blew it today. I really failed but I, God, I thank you that in the gospel, my acceptance of you is not based upon my works, but it's based upon your grace, that I'm still your child. God, I really laid an egg on that sermon. Man, I'm kicking myself. Son, I don't love you because you preach. I love you because you're my son. God, I really, I really blew it at work today. I really flew off the handle. Well, it's good that you know that. Now pick yourself up by God's grace and know that you are dearly loved as my son or daughter. You preach the gospel to yourself every day because a lot of us think we get saved by grace and then we work out our salvation by our own effort. But the Christian life is 
fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Second application point, besides preaching the gospel to ourselves every day, is this. Don't be led by your feelings. Be led by the truth. You're going to feel discouraged. You're going to feel sad. You're going to feel disappointed with yourself. You're going to feel like a failure. Don't follow your feelings. Don't obey your thirst. Okay, sorry. Don't go with the flow. Don't listen to your heart. Guess what? The Bible says your heart is corrupt. It's warped. Your heart needs to be shaped not by what it feels, by what the truth says. And the truth says, for by grace you're saved through faith and that not of yourselves. John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and has passed out of judgment and been given eternal life. That's truth. And you apply that truth. You preach to yourself. You apply that truth to your feelings. You don't follow your feelings. You follow the truth. It's an exciting day. Baptism. Not every day is going to be a baptism day. But take heart. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Pray with me. Father God, we are so grateful for your goodness. We're so grateful for your grace that we don't have to measure up that though we fail daily, you have assured us of our sonship, of our daughtership by grace through faith. Lord, I pray that we would not uh, walk away from the cross. We would not walk away from the gospel, but we would continue to look at the cross, to preach the gospel to ourselves so that we, sin, so that we see our sin rightly and see the incredible grace of your forgiveness to us. Father, I pray for each heart here. pray that you would help us to see ourselves more clearly. Pray that we would confess our sins right now where we are. And that we would receive your forgiveness, your blessed assurance. Father, we thank you for these folks that are going to step forward today and show their faith. Pray that you would protect them from the evil one. That you would guard them from the lies of the world would help them to stay focused upon Jesus. God, we do not love you as we should, but God, we thank you that you love us so dearly. It's in the beautiful name of Jesus we pray. Amen.